bit of trouble right at the first trying to put your finger on the exact purpose. There's not a doctrinal problem in the church. There's not a great heresy that's addressed in this book. There is some great doctrine here. Uh, Paul talks about unity and peace, and he speaks about the joy of walking in the Lord. But to nail down a problem and say, well, here, here's the reason why that Paul has written the book of Philippians, well, that seems to be a little bit obscured as you read through the book. But then when you get all the way through it and you reach the final chapter, then the problem is exposed, and you can go back and you can see what's been written before, and you can see where Paul has dropped these little hints all along the way of what's going to come in the fourth chapter. Now, as he does that, he's already hinting at the solution to the problem before he even gets to the real issue. Now, we might think as we read this that Paul seems, maybe somebody would say, a little bit afraid, uh, afraid to get around to this because he doesn't really want to talk about it, or maybe he's being overly clever as he approaches it. But really what Paul is doing, he's just taking a very tactful approach to handling this. So he brings the church to agreement over some doctrinal issues in the very beginning. He speaks about the camaraderie of the church. He shows the humility of Christ. He talks about how that we must have or the church must have the mind of Christ. And when everybody's nodding in agreement and everybody says, well, yes, what you're saying is the truth, then Paul says, well, this is how it applies to you. So it's a very tactful approach. And He leaves the guilty parties when he finally gets to it with no excuses. There's really no way that they can wiggle out of this but to agree and just settle the issue as Paul enjoins them to do. So in a church where there are no obvious doctrinal errors, in a church that seems to be solid, there was an undertow that was going on. And there was a threat here. It was a spat between two ladies and... It had the potential of actually crumbling, destroying the church from within. So, these kinds of things have the potential to derail a church. And so that's why we have to be very careful about them. Well, let's stand as we read God's Word tonight. We're looking at verses 2 and 3 of Philippians chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3, where Paul says, I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow... Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for everyone who's come out to study your word tonight. And Lord, uh, we do want to have a pure church. We want to have a church that works for you, a church where we do have unity. And help us to see, Lord, where... The arguments that can come into the church have so much potential to destroy the unity that we try to achieve, and then they do, in fact, derail us from the work that you've called us to do. Bless in this message tonight, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Can't we all just get along? That's the title that I've chosen for the message, for these two messages that I've preached on conflict. And that seems to be a very uh, simple thing to do. We can all get along, can't we? But the fact of the matter is that we're all human. And God has not seen fit fit when he saves us to take away our human nature or our sinful human nature. It's still in us. We can't escape human corruption. And so we always have this problem of getting along with one another. Uh, Being human is not an excuse, though. God doesn't give us an excuse because... When you have received Christ as your Savior, the Bible teaches that you have a new nature. 
The Spirit of God comes to live in you. And so you do have the ability now to love and to serve the Lord. And certainly you have the ability to live peaceably with your neighbor. Now in this Philippian church, Paul was confronted with the problem of disunity. Now I want to back up just a little bit into last week's lesson so we can sort of get our bearings. And then we're going to go on and discuss these how conflict arises and then how to deal with that. So the subject last week, the first part of the message, was about the case of conflict. The purpose of Paul's letter is finally revealed in chapter 4, verse number 2, where he says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So there was a conflict going on in the church. Here are two ladies that were fighting with one another. And what we see from this is that it was not a doctrinal conflict. There's no heresy that's being addressed here. Paul is not arguing from one side or the other or about a matter of the faith. He doesn't come down on the side of one lady or the other and say, well, here is the problem, this is the right doctrine, this is what you need to follow. Paul doesn't talk anything here about doctrine. He doesn't speak about heresy. He doesn't even mention why there's a problem between these two ladies. And that tells us that this must have been a personal conflict. It must have been a personal difference that they had. And so they were just at one another's, maybe not at one another's throats, but there was all that potential there to destroy the unity of the church. Now, one of the remarkable things about this argument in the church is that Paul has been dealing with very weighty issues. Uh, Going through the beginning of the letter, we see that uh, Paul talks about some very serious things, some great doctrine, and then he makes this abrupt turnabout to address something that seems to be very mundane. In fact, many of us would call it a worthless issue. Here is something that's beneath Paul. He's the apostle of the faith. He's one called by God. It's beneath him to get involved in something like this little fight. I mean, here he has churches that have deep doctrinal heresies that are going on that he has to deal with. Uh, Some of the churches had gone into terrible immorality. And now Paul stops and he deals with a squabble between two angry women. Well, is that in fact beneath him? Does he really need to be bothered with such a thing? Well, the fact is that The very practical nature of the church is that anything that deviates from the mind of Christ can be a tool of the devil to bring a church down. Now, sometimes the devil is not attacking us with with heresies. Sometimes he doesn't attack us with a horde of demons that come against us and people that are really knocking down the church doors. But what he does so many times is just subtly begin to work in people's hearts There's a little strife over here, a little argument over there. Sometimes what he's doing is just distracting us from the main work that God calls us to do. Now, there's a very good case in point in the Scriptures with the Ephesian church. When Paul established that church, he put down some very tough doctrine. And he instructed the church in some things that people are still arguing about today and some things that people still refuse to believe today. And... uh, The church there at Ephesus, though, they took what Paul said. Uh, They had no problems with the doctrine at all. About 30 years later, they still had no problem with doctrine. They were even commended for their doctrine. But something had happened in that church, and that was that they were led away from the primary purpose of what that church was there for. And so when you come to the book of Revelation and you see the uh, seven churches of Asia, Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church, and he doesn't reprimand them for any problems in their doctrine, but he does say, you have a problem, you've left your first love. Something has thrown you off track, and so you need to repent. 
Now, this is why I think that Paul attacks what seems to be an insignificant problem. And that's because it has the potential to destroy the church from within. Now, Paul's method of dealing with the problem was to enlist help from inside the church to settle the issue. I think the person that he called on was Epaphroditus. We don't really uh, have a a strong indication, or or maybe not a strong indication, but but a definite indication that Epaphroditus is the person But I think that that is the yoke fellow that he refers to in verse number 3. And he tells him to help those ladies out. He says, these are women who have labored with me in the gospel. But what's happening at this point is they're hindering the work of Christ. And so Paul sought out this godly man. And he wanted him to help him resolve the conflict while Paul was away from the church. Now, it's a case of conflict that we're talking about here then. Uh, two people have a little bit of a spat going on, and that, that has the danger of factionalizing the church. So I want to go on this evening. I want to tr- tie in this teaching of the entire letter into the resolution of the conflict. Now, let's look secondly, then, at the cause of conflict. What is the cause of conflict? Well, as I was preparing this message, I received a phone call from Brother Jorge. And uh, sometimes he calls me in the middle of the day, driving down the road, I think he is, and he thinks of a question or something he wants to talk about, so he calls me up. And this particular day, I was writing this message, and he called me to talk about a friend that he had put on the prayer page, and this was a friend that he asked us to pray for concerning salvation. He said that his friend began to read the Bible, and he started in the book of Genesis, and he read the first five books of the Bible, got all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy, and by the time that he got to the end of Deuteronomy, he was very angry. And he said this man told him that he refused to bow to a God or to surrender to a God who insists that we must always do things his way. Now there is the first root of conflict. God insists that we do things his way, And we're determined that we're going to do things our way. So here's the first problem. It's what I call an I problem. We have an I problem. We insist that things must be done our way. Now, this is selfishness, and it started with the very first sin that infected the human race. We call it the sin of pride, and it's also the sin of selfishness. Adam wanted things his way. God had given a command for Adam's obedience, but Adam thought about what he wanted... And he surrendered to his eye problem instead of following God. Now, Jorge's friend ultimately decided that he really wasn't interested in the authority of God, but rather that his authority should be at least equal to God's or maybe even above God's. And what is that? It's really nothing more than making self God. Now, the very first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I can well imagine how how angry that would make a person who wants to be God. Having God says, Don't have any other gods before me. And so if you want yourself to be God, you're going to come in conflict with the Lord Almighty. Now, you and I that are Christians, we look at that, or we hear this story, and we say, Well, what a heathen that guy is. I mean, who can imagine such a thing? How could a person be so callous as to say, I don't want God to have his way? And yet, there are saved people who get into an argument with somebody in the church over some preferential issue, and the real reason is we want it our way. And that is tantamount to saying, I have to be God. Now, you see, that's the very same sin. It's talking about the very same thing. There's no difference. It's an I problem. And if we can't have things our way, we stick to our guns. We don't care 
whether that upsets the unity of our church, because our need of self-satisfaction is greater than God's need for spiritual unity. The Corinthian church was one that had an eye problem. Why don't you listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now you notice the word I there? I am of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, I of Christ. Well, the emphasis there is not on Paul, it's not on Apollos, it's not on Cephas, and certainly it's not on Christ. The emphasis is on I, and that's the very root of the problem. Now, Paul goes on in the third chapter, and he says to, the, to these people, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are ye not carnal? You know, there's some people in the church who like to think about how spiritual they are. I mean, how much they have arrived. They finally got this great understanding of the Word of God. And yet, if they haven't got this eye problem under control so that they're not at the throats of other people in the church, if they haven't always got some kind of an argument going on, that was that show us? It shows they're not spiritual people at all. They're not really super spiritual people. Paul says they are carnal. Now let me explain the word carnal to you because there's a lot of people who just don't even know what, a, what he's talking about here. Paul is not talking about some other type of Christian. There's some other type of Christian, one that hasn't fully surrendered the lordship of Christ, one in which there's never been any spiritual growth, a, a Christian who's yielded to the old man and is a lifelong underdeveloped Christian. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian in that sense. If there is no fruit of Christianity, if there never has been any surrender to Christ, then the faith of that person is flawed. In fact, James said that that kind of faith never saved anybody. So there's no carnal Christian in that sense. In 1 Corinthians, the person who is carnal is one who is immature. It's a synonym for an immature believer. And so if you think that you are a super spiritual saint, and yet you've been involved in some kind of turmoil, and you're into petty arguments all the time with people in the church, you are simply an immature Christian. And we find that there are... Some church members, that trouble seems to follow them everywhere they go. Snipping and biting all the time. They're always bitter about something. If you're a church member that always has something derogatory to say about others, if you always speak poorly of the leadership in your church, if you're always seeking somebody out to hear the garbage that you have to tell, you're not a spiritual Christian. You're an immature Christian. And I'll add to this, if you listen to it, if people who listen to that without correcting it are also immature Christians because you know what they're doing? They're following self instead of following the Lord. They're not handling it as God says to handle it. Now, this is what Paul's doing right here. He's handling it. He doesn't let this thing go. He corrects the problem. So that's the first thing. It's an eye problem, and it's really the root of all the rest of the problems. Now, secondly, there is an L problem, and the L problem is a love problem. That's closely associated with the I problem because it's love of self more than it is love for others. Now, we're going to get into this in our, in our Sunday morning study, but I want to point out something to you. And that is the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Both Testaments, the supreme teaching of both is love. Now, I'll explain that more when we get to it uh, uh, in, in Sunday morning. I'm not sure if it's this Sunday or the next Sunday that's coming up, but uh, I'll explain more how the Old Testament, people think it's a book of law, but it's actually a book of love. And so is the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are broken down into two parts. The first four are about loving God. That's what it's about. And the second part is about loving your fellow man. Now, we'll get into that again. But Jesus accentuated that whole thing with his statement about the greatest commandment. He was asked this in Matthew 22. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now what Jesus was doing there is making a division in the law. First is to love God. The second is to love your fellow man. And so if you have a problem with love, you haven't broken one commandment. You haven't broken two commandments. You haven't broken four commandments. You've broken all ten of the commandments because Jesus says all of it hangs on this principle of loving God and loving your neighbor. And so what is conflict then? It's really love that's missing. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. What is that kind of love? Paul explained that in the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, Charity, love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. You know what that is? It's just a further explanation of what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 3. It's a longer explanation of this verse. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, when you love your neighbor as you should, you're willing to bear with him. That means that you're willing to give in to another church member. You can let some things go. You can just let things kind of slide on by in order to have peace and harmony in the church. So if it's not a doctrinal matter, if it's not a, a problem of heresy, then what in the world do you get all bent out of shape over? It can't be any, anything important. Love stops those kind of disagreements. And when there are doctrinal problems and there are heresies, love also allows us to deal with those with the proper manner. Now the third problem that we have, the third one is an H problem. And the H problem is holiness. Holiness is our spiritual walk with God. Holiness is our separation to God. It's our sanctification. Lack of harmony is a lack of holiness. Now, it's a very simple principle. If I'm a holy person, then I'm walking with the Lord. I remember how many times that Paul talks about walking. And that's the way he describes the Christian life. The Christian life is your walk. And if we're walking rightly... We're walking in holiness. And all that simply means is that we're following the path where Jesus walks. We're following in the footsteps of Christ. And so we're living as Christ lived. And we know we don't do that in our own power. It's impossible. When we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, the indwelling Spirit, that enables us to walk with Christ. Now, here's the very simple principle. If you're walking in holiness, 
and I'm walking in holiness, then we're both following Christ. And if we're both walking after Christ, we both have to be walking with each other. So holiness is the key here. Our harmony is found in our holiness. When we're angry with one another and there's conflict between us, then we're not walking with Christ, which means that we have an H problem. That's a holiness problem. And that's why you can't find holiness in a list of rules. There is no holiness in haircuts. There's no holiness in long dresses. There's no holiness in not going to movies and not holding hands with, a, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That's not where holiness is. Holiness is in none of the externals. It's a matter of your heart. And unless your heart is right, you can have all of the externals and you're not actually following Christ. So you can plant yourself down right in the middle of a Christian college with a list of rules as long as from the dorm to the parking lot. But if you have anger or disagreement, if you have malice or disunity, there's no holiness. And friends, you can be a member of Berean Baptist Church and you can teach Sunday school and you can sing in the choir and you can have an office here and you can do and you can do and you can do. But if you have an unresolved conflict with another member, you have an H problem. It's a holiness problem. You're not really holy. Now, Paul stops to deal with this problem because it really is, after all, a doctrinal thing, isn't it? Because what we're talking about is the doctrine of pride, it's the doctrine of love, and the doctrine of holiness. Those are serious issues. And they're so serious that they can destroy a church from within. You see what the devil can do? He can conquer a church with a canker on the inside as easily as a cannonball from the outside. So we better get this right. Now, I, I don't think that we have a lot of this problem in our church, but this is a warning to everybody. Don't be gossiping. Don't be backbiting against each other. Let's don't have any pettiness going on because those kinds of things will eat at a church until it destroys it. So there's this case of conflict and the cause of conflict. Now, thirdly, I want us to see the cure for conflict. Now, Paul has been dropping all of his hints along in Philippians here that there's a problem, and that's what I've kind of been doing as we've been going through this lesson, kind of dropping the hints for the cure. What's the cure? Well, you can actually take the opposite of everything we just talked about, and there you have the cure. The cure for I is you, to esteem you better. The cure for L is you, and that is for me to love you better. The cure for H is also you. Now, hear me this, hear me out here. It's let me love you, Lord, better. And then when I love the Lord better, I'll love you. And I'll love my brother as I ought to, and therefore I walk in holiness. But let's break this down, and, and let's look at some things that are just clearly evident in this letter. Paul's dropping the hints all along, and as he does, he's solving the problem before he ever announced what the problem is. And by the time that he announced it, everybody's all in, in agreement about how to cure it. So how do you cure it? Well, first of all, you agree in thought. We found this back in chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, there's some holiness in that, isn't there? Have the mind of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. If we think alike, which is, according to the Apostle Paul, to mind heavenly things, if we are thinking alike, what will happen? we'll end up being alike. We end up with the very same desires. 
Now, some people try to circumvent all of this, and they try the, uh, the cookie cutter. And they think the way to get everybody alike is to just stamp everybody out of the same mold, make a robot out of everybody, just stamp them out of the cookie cutter. Jesus has a better way of producing unity rather than uniformity. Unity is having the same mind. And again, if your mind is like Christ and my mind is like Christ, then we have minds that are like each other. That's a cure for conflict. We have the same prize, we have the same goal, the same things in mind that we're trying to accomplish, and we're going about it together in the same way, trying to accomplish those goals. So what we have is a common, unified struggle. The second thing that we have to do is agree in treatment. Again, verse number 3 of Philippians 2, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That's a good verse for you to remember. That's probably one of the most useful verses that you find in all of the New Testament. It works in so many applications. So here we, do, here we get, see it. We get rid of strife by treating other people like we want to be treated. Even better than we want to be treated. Now, isn't that what you, one of the first things you learned when you were little? Isn't that what your, what your mother told you when she first started disciplining you? Isn't this one of the things she said? I mean, you reached over there and smacked your little brother or your little sister, and your mama said, no, 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 don't do that. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Now, she might not have known it, and you might not have known it, but what she was giving you was a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus said. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's just simply treating other people like you want to be treated. And so that means if someone treats you badly, what do you do? Well, our tendency is you treat me badly, I treat you badly. You do it to me, I'm going to do it back to you, and most of the time I'm going to do it back worse to you. You better watch your back because I'm going to get even. No, no, no. You give back how you want to be treated. And do you know that that can actually be more instructive and more helpful and more devastating to the other person than repaying them unkindly? What do I mean by that? Well, listen to what Solomon says in the Proverbs. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Paul repeated that very same proverb in the book of Romans, chapter 12, and he followed it up with this. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Try that sometime. You know, last week we were talking about the nursery problems. I mean, problems that go on in the nursery. So nursery workers, here's what I advise you to do. Try this one time. That mother comes in there, and she has her little snide remark when she comes to pick up the baby. What's that bruise on his head? What's that red mark on my baby? And you just look at that mother and you say, Have I told you how much I just love you lately? Have I told you how much I love your baby? I just love to see you come. I love taking care of your child in the nursery. It's such a privilege to take care of your baby. You know what that is? It's heaping coals of fire on the head. That's a very disarming thing. Now, the thing that the other person must do, you must either respond in kindness or they go out ashamed because of their rudeness. Don't think that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, don't think that Solomon doesn't have unparalleled wisdom. He knows how to deal with these things. Return unkindness with kindness and it cures a whole lot of your ills. 
agree in treatment. And then finally, agree in truth. Now, ultimately, it comes down to this. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. In other words, what he's saying, there was a time when all of us were concerned with one thing. What's that one thing? Well, it was the gospel. I mean, here's what we're laboring for. This is what we're working together for. We labored in the gospel, and when we were, we were laboring in the truth. We were thinking alike. We were acting alike. And you can't be yoked together with the gospel without being in agreement. It's impossible. You can't have people striving for the gospel without being in agreement. Here's what Amos said to Israel. He said, can two walk together except they be agreed John Gill has an excellent comment on this verse. I want you to listen. He says, Unless they meet together and appoint time and place, when and where they shall set out, what road they will take, and whither they will go, without such consultation and agreement, it cannot be thought they should walk together, and not amicably, unless united in friendship and are of the same affection to each other and of the same sentiments one with another. Or it is much if they do not fall out, by the way. The design of these words is to show that without friendship, there is no fellowship. Without concord, no communion. As this is the case between man and man, so between God and man. Now, I'll be honest with you. I uh, copied down that comment from John Gill, and I truncated it. And I did that to put a little bit of twist of meaning to it. His end conclusion is that Israel did not obey God, and so therefore they could not have fellowship with God. They couldn't walk with God because there was disagreement. Now, his comments ring true also when we take it this way, and as I quoted them, that you cannot have fellowship with God if you disobey God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. My friend, if you want to resolve your conflicts, if you want to get those things over with and have fellowship, If you're going to have fellowship with your brother, you've got to love him. And if you don't, you're out of fellowship with him and you're on the outs with God. You can't fellowship with God unless you're in obedience to God's commands. So here are serious repercussions. It seems to be a very simple, trite matter. Paul's taken four, three full chapters to get to it. The beginning of chapter four, if we're not watching for it, it almost seems like a sidelight when he talks about this conflict between these two ladies. Now, we have this preserved in the Word of God. It's come to us today as God's Word because God is very serious about having a unified body. The only way that churches carry on and exist and go forward for the Lord is if they are unified. We have to walk together in the truth because if we don't, we can't walk with Him. Now, here's the last statement for your listening sheet tonight. You cannot worship where there is conflict. You cannot worship where there is conflict. So if you have something that's going on between you and another person in the church, if there is an unresolved conflict, don't come into the church and act all holy and pious. Everything's just fine. I'm super, super saint today. Don't pretend to worship God when you are in disagreement. Now here's what Jesus said. We studied it in the book of Matthew just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about anger. And Jesus says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus is saying, don't even think about it. Don't even think about coming to worship me. 
Don't ever think about worshiping God if you have conflict. It cannot be done. You can't worship where there is conflict. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what we learned from it. We thank you for the great Apostle Paul who just brings such tremendous doctrine before us and presents it in such a way that there's no way that we can escape the conclusions. So, Lord, we just ask you to bless our church. Uh, We pray for unity among our people. And even though, Lord, I, I can't say that I know of conflicts that are going on, and I thank you for that, yet there may be something that a person is harboring in their heart towards another member Help them to understand uh, we can't worship you. Uh, We can't go forward for you when we have these kinds of things that are going on. So, Lord, help us to be delivered from that. May we look to you. May we work together. May we have a common goal, and that's to reach people with the gospel of Christ. Bless as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.